Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. I'm delighted to welcome Catherine Cano to the show. Multi-talented, she's had an incredible career so far and she's just getting started. CEO, journalist, democracy champion, visionary behind the influential Route 338 project that she's going to tell us about, and now the administrator, COO of the International Organization of La Francophonie in Paris, which means, unfortunately, you have to move to Paris to take on this role as number two of this incredibly important organization. Welcome, Catherine, to the Fearless Woman podcast. Thank you, Janice, for having me. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) So delighted. And also, welcome to our listeners from all over the world, including... France, UK, USA, Denmark, Australia, and so many more. We want our community to spread. So subscribe, tell your friends, and join us online on Instagram. Oprah Winfrey once said, I have a lot of things to prove to myself. One is that I can live my life fearlessly. Does this resonate with you, Catherine? Do you live your life fearlessly? Absolutely. Absolutely. What's an example? Well, um, there's there are many, <laughs> in fact, um, I think the probably it started fairly young. Uh, we were quite, quite determined to learn um, another language. And so speaking only French uh, until I was 19, I decided to go to the University of Ottawa, but on the English program side. It was tough. <laughs> it, was, no doubt. it was hard. Maybe if I, I would have known before how tough it would be that I would have thought about it a, a bit more. But I'm glad I was not afraid to try it. So I always thought that Nothing scares me. I don't know why that is, but I'm, I'm definitely not afraid. And frankly, after a year, I spoke English enough to, to get by. And, and today, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm so glad and proud I did it because that was necessary. It was important to me. So picked up, moved, left home, moved to a new city, didn't speak English. That is pretty fearless. Yes, and it's, um, it is when you are from Quebec, from uh, the region I'm from, which is Chicoutimi, where this is the most independentist, you know, area uh, of, of uh, where it was basically born. Mm-hmm. So you don't hear about the rest of the country. You hear more about Europe and Florida than you hear about <laughs> uh, about Ontario. Or uh, So it was, uh, I felt I was totally disconnected. As soon as I came to Ottawa, I realized there was a world there of people my age speaking different languages or speaking French, but with different cultures that I needed to know that it was important, that my country was way more than, than my hometown, which I'm very proud of. And, and, and I'm the best ambassador, I think. <laughs> but it was important to understand what this country was about. And I think I had this opportunity. And it's such a big country, it which you huge. start to realize when you travel across the country. Yes, it is huge. And it is different in terms of what people's expectations, kind of living, realities, um, they are very different from one place to the other. And it's, I think, one of the um, things that is important to me and I think would be important to, to share is the fact that we need to know, we need to understand each other. We need to actually 
have a chance to talk to people that are from different, but are also Canadians. You know, like mm-hmm. we share values. We share a lot of values, but we don't know that. Often what we hear, and I'll, I'll speak uh, really freely, uh, coming from the media, only the bad stories, only right. what, what's not working, the conflicts, the tensions, the dilemma, the oppositions. But you really hear about what Alberta and Quebec have in common or what BC and Ontario could have in common. So I do think we have a, a duty of helping Canadians to better know their country. I think if we had a better appreciation, it would be a much uh, deeper understanding. Well, and certainly um, you have been, up until very recently, the president of CPAC. And so it's an incredibly important role, particularly in our current times. So uh, yeah. what does CPAC do and um, you know, why does it matter for Canada? Well, CPAC is probably the most important media, and I know I will sound not objective, (laughs) uh, but (laughs) it's okay, uh, because it is a window to our democracy. It is a way to know what's going on uh, with Parliament, what are the people that that Canadians are electing every four years, what are they doing? What's their role? What laws are they are they debating and are they uh, uh, voting on? It's important. It's extraordinarily important. But somehow we've never been successful in, in connecting citizens with their political institutions. So I, CPAC, that's the mandate, is to advance, to help Canadians better understand the uh, institutions, the, the roles of the uh, elected representative and the non-elective. So that's why we broadcast live the, the proceedings of the House of Commons and now the Senate. But it, the second part of the mandate is to give context, to explain what does that mean? What, why is it important? that we sh- Why should we care about what's going on? Because it all affects each, each other's lives. I mean, it has a direct impact on our lives. So CPAC, is is mandate is a hundred percent doing that. They don't do it's it's, it's commercial free. It's the only national broadcaster that is bilingual, totally bilingual, and it has to for mandate to actually um, advance democracy. So that could not be more important today. And you also have a huge digital presence with CPAC. So keeping up with really how people consume information and media. Yes, but that was fundamental, right? Today, the ways people get their information is so diverse and so multi-level, multi-platform. People watch television, listen to radio, podcast, uh, also are online. You know, so there, there is a, um, a survey that was done uh, recently that says that people actually use four different platforms a day. So we needed mm. to be uh, to be able to reach out to more Canadians and to people who want to be informed. Uh, the junkies, the people that actually are li- are in the business of politics, but m- more importantly, we want to reach out to all Canadians. We needed to be there. We needed to be on those uh, digital platforms in a way that people want to consume. So different format, different ways. It's not the content is not the same. So we have a channel, television channel, which is doing quite well. But we also now have a website which with fifteen. Uh, web stream a day like there's like 15 channels on in that web on that website so it's it's an amazingly uh, big network uh, much bigger than anything else and in fact almost bigger than the CBC and Radio Canada because of all this output it's way more there's no radio but we have podcast uh, but in terms of television or video I should say because it's more video uh, it's it's uh, the most uh, uh, comprehensive network 
And now you've got cameras in the Senate, mm-hmm. which that's historic. So tell yes. us about that. How did that come about and why does it matter? Yeah. Well, in fact, the cameras, uh, the senators actually voted to get the cameras and they wanted to be uh, more transparent and, and show the debate so Canadians have a better sense of what's happening in a chamber. Audio was available before, but television is actually from this year. So uh, once they've they've actually installed all those cameras, we we had a conversation about how can we, on our channel and on our digital platforms, make sure this is accessible to as many Canadians as possible. So we web stream live every chamber proceedings every day and then all the committees as well. And we broadcast the next morning, uh, the day before. And, and the thing with the Senate, it's sometimes it's a longer session, sometimes it's shorter. So we've found a way to be able to adapt our you know workflow to make sure it was going to happen. And it worked very well. We had great conversations with the senators and with the Senate authorities, and we worked well together. And we that was like a really uh, great process. And we're very proud you know, to be able mm-hmm. to, to make this um, accessible to Canadians. They can decide if they want to watch it or not. But it's not my choice. That's yeah. right. It's not my choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that this country is extraordinary for that because even though people don't always watch proceedings, uh, although, uh, to be honest, they do more than we think, mm-hmm. um, at least they know it's available. It's accessible. It's transparent. And that is uh, a key, it's key for democracy. And along the the lines of what's key for democracy is this big, bold vision that you came up with uh, that's really exciting and has come to life and and been very influential, your Route 338 project. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about it? What was the dream, how it's rolled out and why it matters? Well, one of the things we realized was that we needed to do some literacy. We needed to, to help people understand their country and the institutions. We could not, we cannot take anything for granted. Civics courses are not mandatory everywhere in Canada. And the thinking was that the younger Canadians are actually aware of what it is, the importance of it, the significance of it, and the implication for their own lives, the better uh, knowledgeable they would be. Maybe that would even influence their engagement. And at the very least, uh, their interest, at least to know, you know, uh, but the engagement to the point where, where we know it's important to go voting. So the, you know, the end game for us was that educating, being able to be a, a learning tool, helping teachers teach that at the whatever it is, geography, history, social science or civics. It didn't matter. We needed to make something that was fun, that was uh, easy for kids from age uh, six to age uh, 17, 18 to actually have a game or something that made them discover uh, the country, this country, virtually, and in reality, writing by writing. So teaching them or giving them a, a, a tool to learn that would help them better understand and, and, and have fun doing it. Mm-hmm. So you partnered with National Geographic mm-hmm. and then created these incredible maps mm-hmm. that not only kids, because I've stepped on it and it was fun to see different MPs finding their writings and you know, and so this, these maps travel. Yes. And, and it's fantastic you say that because um, we realize that this map is not just for kids or, or, or young students. It's actually for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the Canadian uh, Geographical Society, uh, this is an amazing group of people. They uh, came up with the, uh, the idea of, of making one. So we drew together. We never, my team had never done that. I'd never done that. <laughs> uh, so with this cartograph 
you know, specialist. Yes. A fantastic man. And, uh, and okay, what do we want this map to look like to see? So the one thing that's very unusual about this map is it shows every community of five people and more in this country. There's no other map like that of Canada because democracy is about people. Mm-hmm. So even if you come from a little place with 100 people, you can find it. It's on the map. And it's so big. It's like uh, 26 feet by, 20, uh, by 36. So it's as big as a gym. It goes in a gym. Uh, you can actually walk on the writings. It, and it's called uh, Mapping Democracy, Route 338 for 338 writings. So you can actually see where your writing is. And then with the digital map, you can go in and learn about it. And so you have all kind of information about the geography, the history, the culture, which indigenous territories it sits on, all the things that it, and fun facts, things that will make you want to know. And you can actually communicate with other class and compare your writings. You can check where your parents are from, where your grandmother lives in Saskatchewan, if you're from New Brunswick. It's just a, and it's so fun to see the kids because they, they, they walk on the map. In fact, they run on the map. And they, they in, in 10 seconds, they've crossed the country and they never thought they could. So it's, those are fantastic. It's, it's so fun to see them enjoying learning about borders and, and why writings are bigger than others. Uh, what's a writing? You know, what does that mean? How many people in a writing? What's the population? You know, are they immigrants? Uh, so where are the French speaking communities in the country? Where are the other indigenous you know, communities in this country? Which language do they speak? So this tool will grow as, as it goes because there's so much potential. But we wanted this to be the one-stop shop where you'll find out everything about democracy. So we have the documentaries about the Senate, about the House of Commons, about the 24 Sussex, about the Supreme Court. So all the instances uh, and the, the branches of government uh, are explained in, in, in long and short form. And so it's a place we're hoping it's going to, for the election, for instance, we're really focusing on first-time voters. So we're going to have all the issues that concern people who are going to vote for the first time. So for me, it's a long-term project. It'll take 10 years before, I think, before people actually um, realize that what they have learned from a young age is actually helping them at least be interested maybe and make a decision to go vote or not. But I do think it is uh, promising. And and the response has been so, so great. I mean, the map is, we've got five maps. They were booked before September for the whole year. So now we've got to make more maps so they can travel more. (laughs) Which is a great problem to have. Yes, it is. Yeah, you're really bringing democracy alive for yes. for everybody. Yes. Because as you mentioned, even adults like to stand on it. I know I did. It was really fun to yeah. see the country and all the different writings mapped out. And you know, democracy is fragile around the world. And the reason why CPAC is so important and all the media, I say all the media play a role. I mean, freedom of speech, uh, press freedom is very important. We're not the only ones covering politics. Others are doing great jobs. Um, but all together, we actually can help, you know, make sure that Canadians are knowledgeable, well-informed, really well-informed about the democracy. And it's important when you look at what's going on in Europe, elsewhere in the world, even in the United States, even here in Canada, we're not immune. Mm-hmm. So this passion for uh, history and peace and justice and democracy. Uh, was the 10-year-old Catherine very interested in these kind of uh, topics? What was that 10-year-old girl like? Well, it's funny you say that because when I was 10, I got a, my parents were very nice to me. 
I asked to watch the news. I wanted to watch the news. You did. Yes, okay. like 10 years old. So <laughs> Journalist was, in the making. <laughs> uh, so so I, I was the exception. Every other kid had to be in bed by 8. <laughs> and my dad would come and wake me up at 11 to go and watch the news with him and mom. And so I've always been passionate about information and, and news and learning. And uh, and there's a fascination. But my parents, I think, are responsible for that. My dad is, you know, was born in France. Mom is from Quebec. They've both always been multinational kind of people. We we listened to Christmas music around the world, not just, you know, our own. So I've been lucky uh, that way. But, yeah, at 10-year-old, I was reading the uh, uh, the page uh, of the Canadian press or the uh, Agence France Presse, you know, I was recording myself, reading them. <laughs> Can you imagine that with an old German recording machine? But <laughs> but I loved it. I loved watching, you know, that was my dream. I wanted to be a journalist and I started in radio. I was 15. Yeah, take us back to those early days. So you started in radio. Mm-hmm. Here you are. You look very comfortable in front of a microphone, by oh, the way. I love it. <laughs> and it's, we say in French, it's a piqûre. You know, you get the... You get the taste of it mm-hmm. and you can't. So I think for me, radio is the best medium. I know I've been most of my life in television, mm-hmm. but it's it's amazing how you actually, the conversation is deep. There's no distraction, but what you hear and you actually can he- listen to it anywhere. It's feel, it's it's a feeling of a, uh, having someone speaking with you, having a conversation mm-hmm. with somebody, even though you, you know, I cannot have a chance. I don't have a chance to speak with the audience, but there is a feeling of being talked, uh, you know, a conversation, a dialogue. The intimacy. Intimacy, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do radio as, as far as I remember. So I was um, I was a DJ. I was 15, <laughs> going on to 16 because it wasn't legal. But <laughs> so These were different times. Yeah, different. No, I did it for two months before I turned 15. But I, I was, so I had the choice. I was early morning, 6 a.m. To, to noon. I was living outside the country, so... I um I had to have somebody drive me, but at 16, I could take my driving lessons. And I did that with without my parents' consent. <laughs> I went to, I, I got enough money. I went to, you know, I told them I was taking classes. Of a, and then one day I had to come and say, I need a car to pass my driving test. <laughs> they had no idea. I talked to my mom because my dad, I don't think, would have taken well. So she, she was so proud. She said, yes, I'm bringing you with me. And I passed my test. And she was, so we went to my dad and said, I'm driving now. <laughs> So I can, so he was proud too, right? Mm, but it's of one, of, one of those things that wasn't done those days for a woman. You you couldn't, you were supposed to learn uh, driving at 18. Okay. And uh, because men, got, boys was 16 in the tradition, but, you know, legally you could at 16 for a woman, but it's just, that was not a tradition. Mm-hmm. Women were driving later. Okay. So. Not uh, this woman. Nope. <laughs> and uh, maybe it's a sign. <laughs> Trailblazer your whole yeah, life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I did that and I. Uh, and then when I decided to go to university, I wanted to study political science uh, and communication because I wanted to learn about other societies. I've been always wanting to be a, a journalist, but to be a journalist, I thought I need to know what I'm talking about. I don't want to be a gen- generalist. I want to at least, you know, very much so understand uh, the Canadian society, but also others. So I took political, international pol- politics and communication because I th- I really deeply believe we need to communicate and communicate well. Uh, it's uh, it's often the conflicts and the tensions come from the fact there's no communication or bad communication. So, um, so I had a terrific time at the university. Loved it. And you've been all over. You've worked all over the world. Yes. Uh, tell us the different places and what you were up to. Washington and mm-hmm. and where else? So I was lucky enough to. Um, 
to actually, uh, well, I, lucky I, I did look for a job in Washington mm-hmm. <laughs> and I found one mm-hmm. at Radio Canada. So that was my dream uh, coming through. And, and Washington in those days was 1989. So it's going to age me a bit, uh, was when the wall came down in Germany. And I was at the first, my first summit covering uh, in radio, for radio actually, uh, was the Gorbachev Regan summit. And, Must have been uh, thrilling. Yeah, when Regan said, tear down that wall. Mm-hmm. And oh, I was 25 years old. It was like when you so think about exciting. it. it and, I, and so I, I, I was in like a fish in a pond, right? I was really, <laughs> a, so I, and Washington was, uh, I, and I spent three years there. And I started at the lowest level. I was the assistant production, you know, the first, you know, last one in. And I was working for French and English radio and television at the time. And it was during the first Gulf War. I was always remember. Um, so I did a first year for the French uh, more. Uh, and I discovered my city, my you know, that country. Uh, and then I was asked to be... You mean Washington? Yeah, Washington. Yeah. You yeah, started to really take to it. Yeah, yeah. And because it, it, it's a power. Uh, this is there's nothing happening in the world that doesn't go through Washington or doesn't involve Washington or, or you know, invo- you know, Washington is the power, really. In those days, it was there was no doubt about that. And um, and, and a year later, after my first year, I was asked to uh, um, sit in for the English producer for the summer because people wanted to take the time off. So I said, sure, I can do that. Right. So um, I learned to do camera editing, everything, producing. Uh, it was funny because I did not know anything. So because I was from radio now, switching to television. And then on, on August 2nd, Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait. There was no one, no one else in the office. I worked for 28 days in a row, sleeping mostly in the office. Wow. Uh, and I had three reporters coming from the English Network, Dave, uh, David Halton, uh, Tom Kennedy, Paul Workman, Susan Armiston, great, great journalists coming down. And they didn't send me another producer, didn't no backup, but I was uh, running with my high heels in the office on the construction. <laughs> but we were, uh, it was war. It was war. So we, and, and they decided to keep me after that because I really, um, I, I think I really shined because I, I was, I, I, I loved it, but it was really serious times. And I, but I learned, I learned so much. It's like a master class. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was really Living. lucky because that, uh, you know, covering the Middle East, I went to Madrid for, to a Middle East, um, a conference. I went to Colombia to, to for the drug summit, uh, and I did you know incredible things like you know getting interviews with the president of Peru and all that. Mm-hmm. And I you know it's it's it was an opportunity of a lifetime, Washington. And then I, I lived in the U.S. for ten years after that, um, covering the elections. You know the two thousand election that never ended with uh, W. Bush. Yes, and I loved it. I was on air. You know it's funny. I came started as a producer, became a journalist on air. At 38 years old. So the good thing about that is that you have so much content. You know so much. It's easy. It's easy, much easier. So I covered the election as an on-air journalist in 2000, 2008 as a political analyst. And I did every caucuses and primaries. And when Obama uh, came to Denver for the uh, convention, that was my, where I lived. It was, you know, fantastic to be covering uh, history, you know, in the making. So I've, I've been very lucky. And then I, right after that, I was offered to go and be the um, deputy news director at Al Jazeera English in Qatar. So I was based in Doha. And uh, my task was to um, reform, modernize the uh, organization and uh, uh, review all the infrastructure across the, uh, across the world. So I spent time in Kuala Lumpur, London, Washington. And so it was, it was fun. again, you know, opportunities like that, you just, it's a dream. 
and I was dealing with 54 countries. Uh, so the editorial meeting in the morning was, was, was so, such a learning experience because I thought I was an open woman, you know, like uh, open to culture, open to, oh my God, did I realize that I wasn't. It's a different viewpoint when you come from different places around the world. And it's important to listen and to understand. You don't need to agree, but you need to know. You need to know that there's not just your viewpoint. There's many others. And how have those global uh, experiences and perspectives shaped your view of Canada, if at all? Oh, it has, because first of all, I feel we're very lucky. I feel I'm lucky to have been born here. Uh, Canada has a great reputation abroad. Canada is a great country with great values, and you wish you could export them all, but you can't. You know, you have to be mindful of, uh, of others' culture and try to adapt and maybe uh, help you know, those countries understand, you know, what's important uh, in democracy, but you cannot impose things. But Canada has this great reputation of being a fair player uh, and being uh, honest, uh, smart, uh, thoughtful, and actually um, defending the right, you know, the values that for most people are the good ones, right? Respect, uh, freedom of press, human rights, democracy at large. So, yes, it has changed because I, I was a proud Canadian traveling. I was a proud to say I'm from Canada. And if, the reaction of people is amazing. Every time you say, I mean, I'm, I'm just back from Paris and uh, I had to open everything, a bank account. I mean, I had nothing. right? And that's, the minute I say I'm Canadian, I'm going through. This is going through. Right? So they're so happy to welcome a Canadian. It's just like we are, are welcomed. So something that may not be as welcome these days is being a journalist. It's like having a big target on your back in mm -hmm. some places and fake news is a real thing. Mm -hmm. So what's your view as a as a journalist? And, you know, it's such a changing landscape. Yes, you're so right. This is a very good question. It is. We're at a turning point. It's it's actually worrisome. Uh, fake news is is real. I, I hate the term, but this is reality misinformation and disinformation it has always existed but because of social media it spreads so fast it's impossible to stop once an information is out try to to change it or adapt it or say whoops there was a mistake people don't don't get that it's second like information or they they will always have doubt you know is it really true people are way more cynical than they used to be not cynical, but skeptical, you know, asking questions and, 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 and making sure you have the right information. I do hope uh, that people will take always the time to look at sources, where the sources is coming. One of, of the things that I that think... That can be harder to find yes. even now. That's, that's true. And, and the thing is, I have to be honest, uh, us as a media, uh, and I still wear the hat, I guess, uh, we made mistakes. You know, we were not always objective. Uh, we have some, some of the media companies have bias. So it's hard for any individual to figure out what's the real thing, real information or not, because to have a total objective, and that's why I love CPAC so much, because CPAC is considered, has the biggest reputation in, in, in Canada about being a non-bias. And, and, and sometimes people say it's boring because it shows every views, but that's the, that's the role of the media. It's to present all the views. And I do think we have a duty to well inform the public. And we need to actually explain that sometimes, you know, it, it's not as sensational. It's not, it's not as, wow, you know, this, but it's thorough. It's been verified. It's been, so news organizations have standards and people have to understand that those standards are respected. But we have a work 
a, a brand <laughs> image to, uh, to, to actually work again because we are going to, it's going to be impossible to control the misinformation, the disinformation. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, we're already talking about the election in Canada as, as, you know, with difficulties, with challenges at that level. But if we put our energies together, that's why actually we, at CPAC, just before I left, we started a democracy project, which is with almost 30 organizations now, who have at heart media and non-media to well-informed people. So to be at least a place of reference. So if you're not sure, you can go there because it's been verified. But it's, it's hard when you lost the trust of people to gain it back. But the good news is, according to some surveys, uh, is that people are now trusting uh, the media back. Uh, they are less trusting of social media uh, they're actually asking more questions now. So there's a lot of media literacy we need to do. And we may have a window, a chance now to actually prove to, to citizens and to, to people around the world that we actually will be respecting our role and making sure that that trust is, is earned. And one of the ways that you've done that, I know when you were head of CPAC, you worked to create an international organization regarding public service broadcasters. Well, 20 years ago, that organization existed. It was a, a, a formed by um, parliamentary channels around the world that wanted to share informations and how things were done. But then it was, you know, it wasn't continued. So as soon as I arrived at CPAC, I wanted to know what others had done. You know, what, what was the successes of others or, 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 or difficulties? And also because of the situation about democracy and the role we play in democracies, it was clear in my mind that um, media organizations like CPAC, like uh, C-SPAN in the U.S., like uh, LCP, Public Sena in Paris, like BBC Parliamentary in, in London, we play an important role in democracy. And maybe if we uh, collaborate together, uh, we can do things together. We can learn from each other. So one thing CPAC was doing even before I was there is uh, on Sundays, there is this window called the uh, World Showcase, which is what's going on in other um, democracies. So you have a chance, sometimes it's Australia, sometimes it's Germany, sometimes it's France, to hear the most important moments of the week. Uh, we have a two hour of uh, what's going on in Congress through C-SPAN, an agreement with C-SPAN. So Canadians can also see uh, not only the interpretation of Canadians, what's going on in, in U.S. politics, but can have access to what really happened. They can see the Donald Trump news conference by themselves or the debate in the Congress about uh, different laws. So we that was wonderful because now there are protocols of, of uh, information and programming. We exchange programming and help each other. Every time there's something big happening in the world, the phone are ringing. Do you want it? So it's uh, and it was fun to see those. Uh, it, it was interesting and and. Um, and again, a learning experience to work with those people who have been around and have seen the changes in democracy. And we thought we need as a group to make sure we are strong, we're more visible to people, that people know what we do because it's a, it's a, it's a great content. And so uh, when I introduced you, I said that unfortunately, and somebody has to do it, right? Somebody has to go and move to Paris, land of fashion and food and fabulousness. And so uh, we are losing you to Paris. This is an exciting new role. Why did you say yes? And tell us really what you're going to be doing over in beautiful Paris. How could I say no? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be honest, uh, although Paris was not the first thing because I thought it was in Ottawa. Um, <laughs> no, but I wasn't sure. I'm half joking. But the role is to uh, run uh, the second largest international organization in the world. 
It's uh, composed of 88 countries. Which is massive. It's massive. Second largest. Yes, yes, it is massive. In the world, wow. And this is an organization that has four missions. One is to obviously promote and help communicate the language, the French language and culture across the world. And and we know there's not one French culture. There's many cultures. So mm-hmm. uh, the second is to uh, educate, help teachers and make sure with the digital tools now that we we um, there's training for teachers and for people that are actually teaching French. The third is really promoting democracy, human rights and uh, and freedom of press. And, and there's a lot of countries, and not only French, but we are our focus is French, mm-hmm. our French countries, where there are emerging countries and, and, and new democracies. So we want to be part. Uh, so we, we give uh, technical support during election, uh, establishing voting lists. Uh, I know we did that in Congo, I mean, for over a year. We had people knocking at every door to make sure people's names were on, on the list. And there was a record voting. Uh, so, uh, and then the UN is looking at that as a model and they want to bring it to the UN. So that is the third one. The fourth one is really the economy. How can we help French countries to help each other? And there's a focus at two levels, equality of men and women, women mm-hmm. and women, and uh, youth. Because uh, most of the French countries, uh, the average age, and, and most of the French countries are in Africa, is 30 years old. So that's what young we want to go populations. into. Very young population. Mm-hmm. Young people are looking for work. Uh, so through digital, we're going to use, we're really going to do a virage, as we say in French, uh, uh, really get really developed new tools on, on digital to help young francophones to have hope in their own culture and language to be able to work, to be, a, I mean, we realize like in Africa, it's, it's multilingual, right? There's uh, English, there's, there's Mandarin, there's like African languages and French and French uh, there's going to be more francophones at the end of this, you know, in 30 years from now than than ever, almost double. There's 300 million people uh, speaking uh, French right now, um, but it's going that's going to double. The only worry we have, and it's an important one, is that they may be born francophones, but the language used, the language of business, is not French. It's either in Africa, particularly English and Mandarin. French is fourth. So there is a need to make sure that this language will survive. The culture will survive. Because the environment has changed. So the mission uh, is fantastic. It's just fantastic. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. And so you sound perfectly suited for this. Mm -hmm. What about when you think about all this time, because you're going to be looking back from Paris to Canada. So what is your dream? Final question. What is your dream for Canada, Catherine? To take as, uh, as big a place as possible in the most diplomatic way, <laughs> um, because I think Canada has a lot to offer. Uh, I think it does offer a lot already, but there's needs. I mean, I'm looking at the francophonie. There are places in the world that need uh, support, that need uh, that need tools, that need uh, advice, that need um, but support uh, in, in many ways. And I think Canada definitely can be proud of its record and can be even more involved. And I, I, it is quite involved now, but it, there's room. There's room because because we are probably in a right now. The, the, the world is a, is a bit in a, in an awkward place. It's more individualistic. Uh, it's less. Uh, I'm not sure um, there are people that care about others, but it's it's really much for itself. From you know, and and so I think that there is there has to be. Countries that think globally, that think collaboratively, that think as a community and that we're not alone and those countries are not alone. And we cannot 
uh, let isolation win. We need absolutely to bring common values to actually show that there are common values and work on those, work on the positive, on the strength that, that will make the countries, if they work together, stronger countries in a stronger world. So if, uh, if Canada can just continue to, to actually influence that way, to bring the importance of collaboration, partnership, then I think it will continue to shine. A beautiful dream for Canada, partnerships and collaboration at the heart of it. As you take your message of Canada and make us proud globally, um, keep us in mind. And thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us here today on the Fearless Women podcast. Multi-talented, we know that, we heard that. And she's just getting started, CEO, journalist, democracy champion, visionary behind the influential Route 338 project that you so kindly shared. And... Heading off as Administrator, COO of the International Organization of La Francophonie. Thank you again, Catherine. Well, thank you. And rest assured, I will never forget where I come from. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to the 30% Club organization for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. The 30% Club believes that gender balance on boards and in senior management encourages better leadership, governance, and all-around better board performance. Want to learn more? Visit their website at 30percentclub.org to find out about membership, supporters, and their key initiatives. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca slash women.